Elise Rosado. Today's topic is building and sustaining community relationships. And we are continuing our journey um, in terms of employment and recovery. And, you know, as I think my colleague Dory with us has said, um, you know, you know where we're from. And um, of course, we have no opinions. And um, <laughs> you read about me and read about my colleague. Um, but this training module is really to focus a little bit on not just employers, but to think about what it's like from the other side of the aisle, maybe of, you know, it's really important for individuals with disabilities, particularly mental illnesses to work. But if you cross the aisle to, you know, how does it feel in the workforce? Um, what are the things that employers think about? What are things coworkers think about? Um, and how do we build these relationships so that we're kind of all in this together? Um, you know, our learning objectives hopefully will take us there. And then we're really gonna talk about some, you know, big kind of employment issues, but then maybe also talk about a case if we get to Mario, and I know Dory introduced him last week a little bit about diversity and in just inclusion of people with mental illness uh, in the workplace. So all that said, uh, Dory, did you wanna say anything up front here or? No, just nice to see everyone again and glad we're all back together. Oh. Yeah. I'm excited to be back also. Yes, so, I was including you. So like just thinking about employment and why it matters. Um, and I think we've really talked about this since, you know, we began our, our discussion. Um, but, you know, employment is really, it's a human thing. I like to tell people, you know, even if you go back to, you know, early Neanderthal humans, somebody was hunting, somebody was gathering but people were doing. Um, and so, you know, when you look at us as humans, we are an active thing, but when you look at Americans, particularly and culturally, work is a real cornerstone of who we are. Um, we value it. If the recent pandemic has taught us anything, it would be about how important work and the economy and keeping the work foundation of the United States going and not just from a health perspective or even a fiscal perspective, but I'd say from an emotional perspective, I think a lot of us really connected to how work changed, what work things we like now that we didn't get to do. Like, you know, you miss your coworkers some now. Um, or, boy, I don't miss the commute, but I sure miss the people, but I still liked getting out of the house, even though I didn't want to do things. And so I think it's really important to consider that context when we do this because, you know, not only is that something relevant to what opportunities for employment workforces and employers give us, but where are people with disabilities in this conversation and what does that look like? Um, one thing I'll tell you quite parenthetically, I don't know what streaming services you have. I don't personally have any stock in any of the streaming services, so I'll say that, but there's a documentary that was recently on Netflix called Crip Camp. And if you have not watched this documentary, I would strongly recommend that you do so. Um, it's a little less, ironically, coming from me about people with serious mental illness or psychiatric disabilities, but it's a really excellent discussion of people with disabilities. And one of the things that I think was most surprising to me was when they get to a section of this documentary, when they're talking about policy and they're talking about the American Rehabilitation Act, um, which in the early 70s was not popular. The idea that people deserved rehabilitation and opportunity was not popular. 
um, and employers didn't have to do it. And what you see in this documentary is some real life footage of people with physical disabilities and what they had to do to work um, and what they kind of had to work around themselves to work. Um, it also talks a little bit about the Americans with Disabilities Act and what changed when um, we had the Americans with Disabilities Act because it gave employers an opportunity to have more clarity on what they should be doing. And it probably gave them a structure to ask some questions on how do I do that or how do I afford that? Um, so I just wanna say, I think that the world has changed a lot in the workplace for people with disabilities. And that's still something that I think is, is really, you know, kind of evolving and it's gonna to continue to evolve. I, um, Lisa, I, if I could jump in, that, I, I think you're bringing up an excellent point and particularly in relevance to anyone who's trying to help someone with a serious mental illness or substance use go to work, it's like the next wave of disability rights and civil rights and that, you know, now we, many people don't think twice about putting a ramp to their building so that someone who's, who uses a chair can get to work. But we know, and you all know, that it can be really difficult to overcome sort of the intangible attitudinal um, concerns that employers have um, about hiring someone with a, a, a history of substance use or mental illness or criminal justice history or any combination of that. Um, and so I think this is where this all is really important. And I think all of those things are even more amplified with people in unstable housing because yeah. a lot of those things lead to ultimately not being able to afford or have any resources to keep your housing or your shelter, I guess I'll say, for a lot of people. And, you know, I think the other thing is that employers are not, you know, people are just like, oh, people with disabilities have not been treated well by employers. I don't think that's true. I bet you we can find, you know, some evil empire employers, um, of course, but I bet for most of those people, we could find some other employers who've made unbelievable strides in the opportunities they make for people with disabilities, you know, whether they're mental illness or others. Um, I also think it's really important because a lot of these things are not very expensive. And what, you know, again, I think employers have their heart in the right place but they're employers, they're businesses. And so for the most part, they are interested in a bottom line and running a business. And so that's where sometimes the tension might be created between how do I run a business, but also support people or what am I gonna to have to do that might take away from my business? And for the most part, I would tell you that decades of research, you know, again, primarily conducted by BU and others, have demonstrated these accommodations are not hard. Um, they're actually kind of thoughtful when you think about it. And some of them are things that a lot of just all of us would benefit from probably if we were really mindful about what would be an inviting and supportive work environment. Um, again, the last 20 some months have probably taught us some of that. Um, but also like they're unique to different kinds of people. And I think that's also something where the story noted, you know, if an individual uses a wheelchair or some other kind of assistive technology, it's very concrete. It's very material. It's right in your consciousness of, oh, I can sort of see what this person might need, you know. Um, for a person with a mental illness, it might not be so clear and it might be different kinds of things than, you know, a ramp or assistive technology or something of that variety. 
So the things that we really see, and if you look at some, you know, research that's been done, I, I know this is 2016, but I thought this was a really interesting framework because this is what makes, you know, for employers to matter and for them to feel like their partnership with us. These are the kinds of things that were identified by this National Council of State Legislatures and task force, particularly about disabilities in the workforce. That I thought were really interesting about these themes. And what I really also want to say is that we've been speaking a lot about, you know, the individual placement and support model as, you know, the leading supported employment model and evidence-based practice for people, particularly with mental illness. There is nothing in these five themes that is not addressed by IPS. And so while the employer side and the federal government, hey, this is what's right for disability side people said, these are the things we need guess what? The evidence-based practice is saying, yeah, these are the things we provide. And so when you look at these five areas, you know, I'd say number five right now might be more of aspirational, not just for people with disabilities. I'd say for most people, number five is a little aspirational, but, you know, laying the groundwork, um, what's your education? Um, what are you interested in? Uh, do you have experience in something else? Um, do you have all the paperwork you need? Recently, someone I know wanted to get a job at UPS, but he didn't have an ID. And so until he got the ID, he couldn't get the job at UPS. Um, you know, do you need a specific driver's license? Um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, someone just made a great comment about what you see in a huge difference in housing retention when you consider, you know, employment retention. So I do want to come back to some of those questions about what is, you know, what employment drives? Housing stability and employment are really enmeshed together. It's really hard to get a job when you don't have a safe place to live. And until you get, you know, until you get a job, you can't afford a safe place to live. So you're kind of in the spiral there, you know. Um, the preparing for work, I think, is an interesting thing. You know, IPS is like, basically, their position is you're prepared for work. If you are well enough to be living or in a non-institutional treatment setting, you know, you might be homeless or you might be in a shelter or living with family, but if you're well enough to be in the community medically and psychiatrically, then you can work if you want to work. Um, getting to accessing work between, you know, getting the job, all these kinds of things. And then number four, I guess I'd like to just pause on because number four had been a black hole for a long time. And people were like, we can get you a job, we can get you a job. What they were struggling with was that there were issues about accommodations, issues about, oh, maybe this is not the right employment opportunity for me. Um, maybe a medical issue came up or even a mental health issue came up and the person's like, I gotta go deal with my mental health, I'm gonna have to quit my job. What most research has focused on is vital to this population, and I think people with disabilities overall, and that's long-term job supports. Um, and again, I will come back to the resources at BU, because one of the things beyond just developing IPS as a model, which has been done by a number of different researchers, a lot of work has said, okay, now that you're in the workforce, what do we need to do to keep you in the workforce? And that's not just you know, structural things like, do you have a house? Do you need a uniform? Is there a bus line to get you there? Um, what's the commute? You know, people are like, oh, great, you got a job over here in Chicago. 
yes, I have to take two trains and transfer to a bus and it takes me 45 minutes. And, you know, that's hard on public transportation anyway. That's hard on public transportation in the winter. And it's certainly hard on public transportation in the winter when you have fears of COVID and flu and all the things that have happened. So, you know, it might not be that the person doesn't want to work. The commute is not realistic for them. And that's not necessarily the best thing. And, you know, they don't, maybe not a move. Maybe that's not the best work for them. Could they find something closer? Is there other transportation? So how do we have, how do we make everybody feel competent in these areas? What are some of the things, for example, that you might see in people you work with that would be more related to the groundwork or the preparation that they might need to even make employment an opportunity or a realistic choice for them at this stage in their recovery? I also think things we've heard on staying at work and in the long-term job support stories also put a couple of BU materials in the chat that we just want to reference you to. There's a couple PDFs there um, for people. Um, and we can always back send them to the, the team at um, PMH so that we can uh, make them available to you as PDFs. But um, you know, long-term job supports could also be having a peer coach or a peer mentor where you know you get up in the morning and like your friend or the, the individual you referenced to who's like i'm just gonna walk off hey maybe before you walk off you stop and you call me and we talk about you know why are you feeling upset or what feelings are you having and sometimes that peer can actually help you know a person de-escalate or make a more positive choice than just walking off the job and, you know, then having a series of kind of negative work endings. Because then again, as you go to find another job, that doesn't necessarily bode so well for you. And so I think, again, peers can also have a really positive role um, from the client side. And then I guess I would also say that peers as employers can have a really positive influence on other employers. And as many of you probably work with, you know, law enforcement or first responders of any kind, you know, if you want to talk to, for example, a police department about the benefits of jail diversion or the benefits of CIT teams or any of those kinds of programs, if you have another police officer go in and talk to them about it, they're so much more receptive because they, they probably know that that person understands their perspective and understands some of the things they're concerned about and has, you know, helped or, or dealt with those concerns themselves. So when you find employers and or build relationships with employers, getting them as mentors and getting feedback from them about, hey, what works here? What doesn't work? What is something you wish we could do as a team or a program that would support more work with individuals? Because if you don't ask them, they might not know to tell you. And they'd be like, hey, you know, it would have been great as if we did X or Y. And moving forward, you know, that would really benefit us. The other thing is that sometimes employers recognize that they have other jobs they never would have considered for a person maybe with a mental illness or disability, maybe something that's part-time work, maybe something that, you know, is more fitting that that person might want to do a certain number of hours a week versus having a full-time job and the demands of a full-time job. And so that's another way to really help employers, I think, um, get their perspectives and think a little bit outside the box. Okay, so someone just put in a comment um, yeah. about people are asked to volunteer first. Yeah, you know, 
that's a real hard one. I, my response to it, and I'm going to defer to you here, Dory, is that's not really the recommendation a lot of times for people in terms of getting back into work because it's, you know, unless volunteerism is something that helps them maybe with getting up, being on time, putting some structure in their life, you know, because I don't know, Dory, where do we stand on, you know, mandated volunteerism before IPS? Right. And it may be, I'm wondering too, if you're saying that this is what they're being told either by their provider or by employers. I think what's really interesting, what we've seen a trend of on the East Coast is in the entry level jobs that where people actually learn how to work, right? If they become ill with a mental illness when they're in their late teens and they miss out on all those opportunities to learn how to work and they don't have a job history, you know, that's, that's a, a, an important step is that first job. But the, the first jobs now have, there's these, like, we want, it will say entry level and it'll say one to two years of experience. And that can be, you know, like, well, it's entry level, you know, it's like, or they require at least, you know, a high school degree and some college. Um, and so that's where I think the employer relationship building has to happen. Um, we've had some set success in going directly to places that hire a lot of um, entry level positions and saying, here's who we are. We help people who live with mental health conditions, which, by the way, is most of the United States. Um, people don't talk about it, but there are a lot of people out there and we support them. We would support you as an employer. And we're wondering if we could, you know, build a relationship where when you have openings, we'll help the person get ready for the job um, interview. We will, you know, we'll provide support once they're there. Um, on the job. And that's, that has actually worked for us with a couple of, you know, places like a state street bank and a bookstore and, um, you know, a place like UPS where people can actually build a career path in some of these places if they can get through those first couple of months of staying well and working and building some work history. Um, and the other thing that we have done is you know, we have then, you know, we see, and I talked about this last week, is that education is a vocational activity, right? And that, is, so it may be that some people that you're working with, the first step in their vocational rehabilitation is to finish their high school degree. And so getting them the funds to do that um, or getting, helping them get connected to a program where they can do that and get some sort of, um, you know, a lot of those places also have connections to uh, vocational training programs. So let's keep these five themes in mind as we're moving forward um, in our discussion this morning. And then, um, you know, let's, we've talked a little bit about these, but, you know, people don't always know about laws and that, and I'll say up front, I'm not a lawyer. I don't even play one on television, but here are some questions I wanted to pose to people first off, and that is, you know, the ADA requires employers to hire unqualified individuals with disability, um, if they're a fact. Um, the ADA gives job applicants with disabilities an advantage over individuals without disabilities, if they're a fact. And then the ADA addresses the financial burdens relevant to small businesses that cannot afford to make accommodations for individuals with disabilities. 
So um, I guess we could start with the first one, which is myth or fact. Huge myth, giant myth, one of the most important myths of all. And that is that people should be hired just because they have a disability, basically. And that's not the case at all. An individual with a disability under the ADA or not must be qualified for the position. And that means they have to do the essential functions of you know, the position with or without reasonable accommodations. Um, and you know what? Uh, we have another question about the construction trades. We could come back to that one. Um, you know, if you can do the essential functions with a reasonable accommodation, you know, that might be something like instead of you wanting to take on, if you get an hour long lunch break and your person, you know, with mental or behavioral health issues, maybe you ask your employer that you don't want to use your downtime in one full hour. Maybe you'd like to take a half hour to eat your lunch, but use the other half hour into 15 minute breaks or add those 15 minutes to the break you already get so that you could take a little more time and center or focus or whatever feeling that that person might want to do. That really does not interfere with really the essential function of a job. That, to me, that's an example of one that does not necessarily have to interfere much with the essential functions of a job. Um, you know, can a blind person uh, be a commercial airline pilot? I think we'd all say that's not possible. No, because given the nature of that person's disability, it's not psychiatric, but there is no real, you know, reasonable accommodation that the individual would be able to continue to perform that job. And so that's really what it's about. Um, and of course, you know, where can you find really qualified workforce? It is people with behavioral health conditions. Um, as Dory noted, the whole country is experiencing you know, some emotional distress right now, um, more anxiety, more depression, you know, whether or not people are, you know, fully in an experience of, say, a psychiatric disability, there's definitely more of this going on. So what do you think? What do you think about the Smith? Do you think that is something that still is more among employers or more, excuse me, more among the public in terms of employers are first forced to hire people who aren't qualified? So someone said, yes, but it required working with the owners of a company. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you here in Illinois, we still encounter a little bit of this. Um, and, you know, people have reservations. I think about sometimes, um, I'll tell you a couple industries at a community mental health center that I work in called Thresholds, full transparency. They found some really unexpected industries where people with mental illness thrived. And one of them was working as a delivery person for flowers and learning to become a florist. And what they, the individuals loved about it was it's really creative. Um, I have a feeling it's much harder than most of us think. Um, and it's kind of like the service trades where you mentor a little bit under some other floristy person. But what they loved about it was their job was to basically, especially in the Chicago loop where it's probably closer to walk than to try to drive, they would pick up these floral arrangements and they would deliver them all over to the high rises and the kind of businesses around the Chicago Loop. And what the members loved about it was how happy people are because um, almost everyone is happy when they get flowers and they felt like they were part of that. And, you know, people at first were like, you would send a person, you know, with schizophrenia to like deliver flowers or like, yeah, we would do that. 
Um, and so that opened up a whole other industry um, of ideas for people. Um, bakeries were, was another one that we found because a lot of individuals didn't necessarily want to be bakers, but um, they were really excited about working up front because um, pretty much everybody likes bakery as far as I can tell. And so those were industries where, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think face-to-face -face with a person or a public might be a great choice and it was actually a really excellent choice. Um, that said, while a bakery might be a really great food service opportunity, a fast food place is a terrible food service opportunity because, you know, they might be too old. All their other coworkers are younger people. That's typically kind of job. Everybody wants something right now. And there's a like a rush and a lot of anxiety around things. Do it now, do it fast, do it perfect. Um, and so again, while both, you know, again, a bakery versus this two food, food service opportunities, completely different working environments. So I also, um, I, I, in those PDFs that I posted, we have a whole section on people with addiction issues and mental health issues working in the food service industry, particularly in restaurants and bars. I mean, people can get hired and obviously right now because of COVID, there's such a shortage, but it's a, it can be a really uh, risky environment for folks. And then there are some uh, ways to have conversations and make informed decisions about how to do that and maintain your wellness. So I recommend taking a look at that. Yeah. Um, okay, so myth or fact, the ADA gives applicants disabilities advantages. Nope, they do not. This is one of the things that I think is an interesting myth and really the discussion and relationship I think with an employer is what is the employer's expectations about what they know about any of their job applicants and how are they going to ask or interface with you about it. I mean, my personal opinion is that if an employer has developed a relationship with you like Dory said and they come and they say look we're part of BU we have this center we work with these folks we would like to bring you candidates, that employer is already open to that disclosure and would be like, sure. And they're gonna look at candidates as good candidates. Um, in more open market jobs, employers really can't ask about an individual's disability or medical status before they hire them. And so unless they have some you know, side eye or I'll say some kind of stigma, like, gee, you look like a person with a disability, um, that's really something that would be coming off the table in terms of, you know, they need to look at people straight up about their um, their abilities. And I would say if an employer is the kind of individual or, or business that would be suspect of a person without a lot of discussion, that's probably not the best work environment. Um, and so again, this is something that the ADA has, has tried to address for the most part. So the ADA addresses financial burdens that um, address or affect more small businesses that could not afford to make uh, reasonable accommodations. That actually is a fact. And one of the more common things you hear from employers is, I think it'll be too expensive. I don't have what I need for that person to be here. You know, they feel like if they want one accommodation, then it's going to be like they're going to want more and more and more of them. And so educating people about the fact that, you know, a reasonable accommodation really needs to be directly related to the person's disability and their success on the job. You know, can a person with a disability ask for 10 more days of 
vacation time as a reasonable accommodation? No, they really cannot. <laughs> so those are not the kinds of things that they would have to pay for. You know, also the government has focused on the sizes and the bandwidth of companies. And I think the best example of that recently is, you know, if your company is the size or bandwidth of a certain number of employees, there is a federal mandate about vaccines for COVID unless an individual has, you know, a relevant and credible exception. So the government looks at these things along, you know, the economy. And if you're a small business, and I believe it's 15, it's still 15 employees, you don't really have to, you know, you, you have to, I think, be credible, but some of the stuff for the ADA is not necessarily going to be as applicable to you because of the size of your workforce. The other thing is that for big workforce people, um, there came the idea of undue hardship. And so what undue hardship turned into was you couldn't go from the ADA passed on Monday and everything was perfect for people with disabilities, particularly physical disabilities, by Friday. Um, I could tell you at my own university, we still have buildings, to state university, I confess, where we constantly are having the disability rights groups and everyone say, I can barely get into your building because it's so old and so decrepit and it's just not in compliance. What undue hardship meant was our university needs to pick up with this. They need to do it within a certain amount of time. Um, it doesn't mean they get out of it. It just means they get a little time. And employers have really had enough time to make things like architectural kinds of adjustments. Um, many of these things have become normative building codes. And unless you're in, I think, even in some kind of historic or landmark building, there are certain building safety codes that not only have to be complied with, but now certain architectural things that you would have to comply with for individuals with disabilities. And these are, include everything from um, a deaf person who might need um, a light technology in a hotel, like a flashing light. Um, you've seen, I'm sure many of you, if you've made a reservation in a hotel, you've seen rooms that have, you know, ADA shower, which basically means you can roll into a wall shower. There's no tub um, and different things. Um, and so again, there was probably not an ADA accessible room at your local Marriott, um, but there is now, and they don't have to have every room be ADA accessible, but they need to have a certain number of them accessible to address what we would consider population need. Um, so any thoughts about this, just in terms of, you know, do you hear this from kind of some of your non-small business firms that they think it's gonna be hard and complicated? costly but it, i posted we we did some study that looked at the average cost of providing reasonable accommodations with people with mental health conditions was around 500 dollars. because a lot of the accommodations are things like an extra break um a quiet space to go during the day coming in a little bit later um then you know nine o'clock or seven o'clock if they're on a on a team or a crew um, the kinds of accommodations that, you know, accommodations are linked, you want to link accommodations to what people's challenges are. So if they take medications at night to help them sleep and help with their symptoms, they use those medic same medications make it difficult to get up and get out on time in the morning, um, or may have some cognitive impact. Um, and so looking at how is that going to play out in the workforce, and those are the kinds of accommodations that are going to level the playing field for them. 
And sometimes, you know, it won't necessarily be one that they can make with their employer. Um, sometimes an accommodation is more back in the one and two of prepping and the groundwork of work. We, like BU, we try to use some of these principles of IPS and supported employment in other populations. And so we did some research among individuals living with HIV about 10 years ago, and we found that some of their challenges to returning to the workforce were very similar. They might have depression or anxiety about it. They might fear disclosing their status. Um, they were afraid to work in a place where they might cut themselves, you know, like these kinds of concerns, cut myself, it would be a problem. Um, and one of the things that was really interesting about it was that in the end, um, some of them actually made changes in their treatment that actually were the thing that allowed them to be more successful at work. And so some of the classes and medications that population use can cause a lot of GI distress. And so one person told their caseworker at one point that he really wanted to work. He knew he could be at work. Um, he had, you know, he had a BA, he had work experience, he'd just been out since, you know, he tested positive, but one of his medications, because of the GI distress that he had, he's like, I don't know how I could work, I need to, you know, have an accessible washroom, whatever. So what they did, instead of taking it from the employment side, is they took that to his physician side, and they said, is there a medication or a treatment he could use that was as effective as what he had? that would not necessarily cause the GI problem, or could they uh, prescribe or recommend something else that might reduce that problem? Um, and that was something where when they changed his medication and that physical problem went away, he was back in the workforce in two months. And the employer didn't need to know anything. Of, it didn't become, as Dory said, an accommodation in the workplace because it had kind of become a strategy of treatment out front with his health. And those might be things, again, that, you know, are worth speaking about people, especially with behavioral health or substance use issues. And if they're in recovery, um, are there aspects of their recovery that now that work is a goal that they can focus on? One of you is asking a question here. Um, does any of you know other employment programs for people with disabilities besides DOR in Los Angeles County? I think that's a question for all of you. Californians. Uh, they have Goodwill Works in Orange County is an example. And then, yeah, I would say Goodwill does a lot of um, advocacy and support of people with disabilities in every state. That's pretty pervasive. Let's talk a little about, bit about employer networks. And so um, who are the kinds of people that we see as partners in the employment community? Um, I see this as a public health issue because the more unemployment and um, lack of employment opportunity we see, we see really, really negative outcomes in those communities. You know, I don't like to put a value on social determinants of health, um, but poverty, you know, if one of them is going to float to the top, you can follow poverty all around all kinds of things. And when you see poverty as an enormous driver of public health, Part of that is because if there are no jobs in your local area, you know, there's no thriving economy, there's no growth. Um, you, your neighbors are not working. And as you and your neighbors lose resources, there are fewer opportunities for businesses to be in that community because you can't patronize them. Um, 
when businesses start leaving, you start to see all of the other kinds of things, less of access of services, um, less resources that lead to health, like um, food deserts and things like that. Um, so I just think the overall public health, I'll say grade of a local community is really, really important. We did some research here in Illinois where we looked at the different, we have 77 catchment areas in the city of Chicago, different ones, and they're kind of chunked up by not just zip code, but also some street lines and however, and, you know, they're kind of unofficial, but they're the neighborhoods and you know, I guess it's kind of like, are you in Silver Lake or Hollywood? I don't know. But that aside, um, when you look at the demographic profiles of those communities and you start with the median income and you start with the unemployment rates, and then you go down and you look at things like presence of hospitals, presence of an L-stop or public transportation, some of our communities don't even have an L-stop in them that would take you to a community center. So you'd have to stop somewhere else and bus in or do whatever it is you would need to do. Uh, some of them don't have school mental health centers at all. Like even the school doesn't have um, a mental health center for students in it. And so those would be things that we would see. Um, housing and shelters obviously would be one of the biggest things in terms of employment, because in order to have the consistency generally it's very, very hard for homeless people to work or work consistently. Now, I know homeless people who have done it, um, but, you know, they are in what my small but mighty young work staff would call a gig economy now, where the homeless person shows up at a restaurant and maybe not now, but then would wash dishes for the day and they pay them $50 or, you know, they might take out trash. They might do something, but not in you know i don't want to say under unpaid uh, undocumented work that's what i should say undocumented work um not structured no benefits and again uh something if they don't show up tomorrow they might just not show up um and that would be something you know to think about um and then the grocery and food stocking and i mentioned this because this is actually something um that came out during covid was that people actually started to look at grocery store and stock people as frontline workers and without them still going to work, there would have been no food supply. And so they were out there working when everybody went home, even when we weren't vaccinated. And so I just, you know, that's a workforce that's constantly out there. And right now it's actually something that is a problem because the supply chain definitely is a problem. Two resources you could look up that I put here, and you can correct me, those of you who actually live in California, but they were live, and that was the State Association of Workforce Portals for calworkforce.org. And then I looked up the California Homeless Hiring Tax Credit, which is a little bit of a segue. If it wasn't you, Keith or Hugh, it was somebody mentioned, are there tax or incentives for people um, and employers? And in fact, let's just go to that because there are. Um, I'll get there in a second. Um, peer support, as we mentioned, is also really crucial. And so here are a couple of resources from the federal government, not just between your clients, but between the employers. And so here's one where it's places for if you're working with an employer and you have a great relationship and you're like, hey, I'd really like you to talk to this other employer friend of mine. And here's another resource for you that you can look up, you know, 
it shows the employers that you're developing or you're trying to build relationships with that you've done your homework there's opportunities for them and that you're giving them some up you know they don't have to go do all the work themselves in terms of looking this up but you're giving them some seeds and some things to look like hey not only can i support you and my team my agency support you in this but there are programs that we are going to rely on to make sure that this is a positive work experience not only for the clients but also for the employers just also put up here there's um the painted brain i don't even know what that is but i want to go find out what it is maybe something we could do is all of you could consider next week um sending us some resources that all of you know about and we could try to collect them on a little list and then we could distribute it back to you so that everybody had it in the same kind of place or we could work on that but that's yeah. something that obviously all of you are the best authorities on okay so um yes um is there access to employers who had success this goes with earn um department of labor actually really does try to track this because it is their charge not only to be the department of labor with anybody but if enforcement and monitoring and implementation of the ada is there, labor is really one of the places where you're going to find this and so there are affiliates um you know again with earn and these different places that people can look at um and you know there are some big almost fortune 500 level companies that are in this group that will talk about this is what we did this is what was successful for us um and serve a little bit as these employer mentors for people so ways that we can give back is really here what it's in it for you you know and i think appealing to people's humanity is important um I think culturally to remind employers of any trade that work is a real American fabric thing is not just an emotional toy. I think that's very common and very socially relevant to us right now. And it's important to people right now, particularly after the pandemic that they're able to work or that work is there and that the economy is there. That's for everyone. Um, Tax incentives are available for people with mental illnesses, mental illnesses and disabilities, and employers can find them out. That's a very individual thing. And so again, how big is the employer? How many people do they hire? What programs do they participate in? You know, that's something we can support our employers to do, but that's of course going to be very individual to every one of them. Um, ODEP, the Office of Disability and Employment um, at DOL has disability awareness materials and workshops all free all written at a more entry level you know that they're accessible to any kind of person any kind of business um and then they get a little more um complex as you might move forward to them but they have some real specialty topics about things um and all these different things um employers actually can call and get individualized technical assistance from the department of labor I need X to be successful. This is an area that we might be able, again, to do some of those one through two and certainly four back of the themes of employment. How could we help employers identify the questions they should be asking about for technical assistance? Or can we partner with them and say, hey, you know, that's a really good question. How about you and I? call and work together on what would make this a successful employment experience for you because of the kinds of individuals with disabilities or or whatever kinds of recovery they're in 
And then, you know, do things that we do to try and promote inclusion. And I recommend that we work with employers to do something like National, national excuse me, Disability Employment Awareness Month, regardless of their participation or the number of individuals that they hire with disabilities. For any business to say, we take the employment of disability and people seriously, um, invites people to be more open to that business. You know, you might, you never know, you might find some board member who has a person with a disability in their family who might look at that employment opportunity a little different now and might look at that business a little different now. Um, but these visibility things also just help people feel that their contributions are worthy and not overlooked. Um, if you worked with a lot of employers, you could pick some, you know, National Disability Employment Awareness Month champions and just, you know, say, hey, you business, we're going to highlight, you know, you as a champion of people with disabilities. And even if you just send them a little certificate or a card, I think they really appreciate it because it's identifying that their contribution is not something that gets overlooked for the most part. So BU has amazing employment resources that, you know, pretty much talk about a lot of things that we've talked about today, certainly the school to work pathway for any of you working with high school GED kinds of things or some tips in there to talk about. Um, Dory, I should really let you say more about all these materials that would be available to people through the center. So I, these ones just jumped up, um, as Lisa said, and jumped out at me that um, we have that are available that provide tips and strategies. But this idea that, um, you know, school and education and, and, and I think even more so as, as folks have mentioned uh, through Voc Rehab that um, training can be a path to work and, and, and why that is and, and how to help people do that and to see education of some sort as a first step in their work development. Um, and then what are some of the common barriers to employment? Just so practically, if you're helping people uh, prepare to go to work, to be on the lookout for that. Um, where to get training in IPS. Uh, we've talked so much about this model of, of, of employment. Um, they have a whole website there and resources. Um, you can pick and choose uh, tools and, um, you know, they have a newsletter. It, it's good stuff. And obviously in the real world, world, it doesn't get replicated the same way that it does in any kind of research environment. Um, but it, it, there's some really useful materials there. Um, applying for a job with a criminal um, history is obviously something that I think most people we've had to do in helping people go back to work. And um, this is important information on how to do this. And, and now obviously some of you are, are finding resources on how to help people get work or undocumented, another important topic. Um, and then just what is supporting employment? And I did put the curriculum and the provider handbook in the chat. This is vocational illness management recovery. It has things in there like, you know, uh, how do I work when I have an active addiction and mental health issue that I'm, I'm in recovery from, but I'm not recovered from, um, you know, how do I stay well while I'm at work? Uh, things like wrap tools and um, how do I have conversations at work and not disclose? Um, you know, because if all I've done is be in, in programs where all we talk about 
is my mental illness and addiction issue, it can be really hard for people then to go into social situations at work and be able to do that kind of water cooler, you know, at the food truck kind of conversation that's more social. And that's how you build work connection. So there's all sorts of information that you can just, you don't have to go through it step by step. You can just look at the topics and see what's relevant and use it. And then obviously, if you have any questions um, around any of those, let me know. There's my email. Absolutely. And in terms of, you know, the other thing I find is with the training in IPS model of employment, what I would recommend people do is go read that. And if you're not only, you know, that does not mean that, again, you read or there's, you know, we want to work towards supported employment on Monday and we're going to have a fully functioning IPS team on Friday. But what would be interesting would be to look at the kinds of things that are the active ingredients and the real sort of pillars of the model and think to yourself, which ones of these things are we actually already doing to some degree or which ones are the easiest, you know, for us to move to or to start to put in, which ones would be the most buoyant barriers or obstacles? Because you could, you know, still do some of the ingredients of this model and, you know, it won't necessarily look like a full-fledged IPS model, but you could make some strides, certainly in terms of, excuse me, figuring out where the strengths and weaknesses are in your programs and areas where you want to build. And one of um, your colleagues just put another note in the chat about some materials that uh, I guess DMH of LA County has available to employment. So um, you might want to scoop those out of the chat also. So... At this stage, I'm just curious if there are other kinds of conversations that we might want to have just about employers, about employment models, um, you know, kind of thoughts about these things. Um, we do have the case of Mario um, about getting and keeping a job. So we could talk about him and uh, thoughts we might have about him. We brought the, the case of Mario um, I'll say without trying to be completely flippant, I have a feeling most of you are familiar or experienced with some of the things that we might talk about here. But um, Mario is a person who reports that his main goal is that one provide him a job so that one day he might be able to live on his own. And so uh, what might you uh, and our team really be doing to help Mario achieve this goal? So. Some questions I think we should think about as we work through kind of the, the, you know, description of his life and where he is in this, you know, pursuing his employment goal. You know, what are his perspectives? What are the problems or issues from Mario's point of view in terms of getting a job? Um, how do we see the issues in his work? Um, what other social determinants of health um, or his life, if we knew them, would we want to consider? Are there resources and interventions that he has that we consider? Um, obstacles, of course, any legal or ethical issues? Are there family supports? Um, and what other kinds of reactions um, would us and our providers also have? Um, um, there was an additional section next week. That's correct, right, Christina, the final one? Yep. Yeah, and that's pretty open, Hugh. That's just ask us anything about recovery and hopefully one of us will know, um, or all of us will know. So anyway, keep these keep these questions in mind. And Mario was in your materials last week, but I know the team can make him available to you, you know, if you want to, something you want to talk about with your coworkers. So 
let's meet him. Um, Mario's a 39 year old individual in recovery. He is um, living with schizophrenia. Uh, when he was 23, he received that diagnosis. He's had to have some tension with his family, uh, except for one sibling. Uh, over the course of his experience, he's had 18 psychiatric hospitalizations since he was 23. Most of them have been the result or resulted from him taking uh, or going off the medications that he uses to manage his psychiatric symptoms. Recently, he received a placement at a community integrated group home with nine other individuals recovering. He shares a room with one other person. Um, Mario uh, has been receiving community-based mental health. Uh, he has medications to manage his mental illness here. Um, and he's in one contact with his brother um, about once a month, but he, uh, the brother mostly rarely makes in-person visits, um, but Mario really doesn't see too much other family. So have you seen Mario in your life and in your work? Is he a person that you might encounter? Yes, everyone's like, yes, yes, yes. he is. <laughs> yes, he is. Um, Maybe okay, so. I was going to say, and this has become an issue for us here, um, particularly as we work in diverse communities where, you know, where we've sort of designed our services to work with the individual, but actually we find ourselves working with the family. I'm wondering if anyone could speak to how because Mario has a family member, but how how people are integrating working in different communities where the family really comes with the person receiving services in many different ways and shapes and formats, especially around work. You know, work is a big issue for families. The other thing I wanted to say that you alluded to, I think, is how the family views work. And I want to say here, that culturally within the United States, that's also not monolithic. And so depending on maybe the ethnicity or race of a person, they might actually have their family leaning on them to be working because, you know, you're this old and you're able and why aren't you working? Why aren't you, you know, so it's the opposite kind of pressure. And then the person feels, you know, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I should be working or they take any job it's not necessarily a good fit or the right environment for them and they don't thrive, but they stay there because they have to do it and it's expected. And so, you know, you could help that person say, look, let's find a better environment for you. We're not saying don't work. We're not saying don't honor that kind of feeling that work is valued in the culture or in your family, but it also has to not dig away at your wellness, you know, and I'd say we could all probably benefit from that advice, but it's definitely going to be important for a person with a disability if, you know, and those aren't, I don't think they're monolithic by race. I don't think they're by gender demands are different. Um, and all, you know, all those kinds of things in terms of how families, we interject our family flavor. The other thing I think I just thought of is, and we get this a lot now with some, again, community providers I work with, and that's been, um, that they're aging and their family member, often a child is um, a, an adult, but you know, they're 40 or 45 living with a disability. The parents are getting older, 
they're starting to be concerned about what will happen to their family member if they're gone or when they you know move on or pass on and so they're always looking at work as well if they had a job if i knew they had income if i knew they'd be okay you know then i could feel safer that i'm getting older or i would retire you know some parents work longer because they feel like they have to make more resources to leave behind so i think there's some really complicated you know kinds of family issues but I also want to point out, Hugh, that what you all did is something that we might recommend here in this case of Mario. And then I think we could end today because I know we're coming up on the end and maybe revisit him next week as we talk. And that is what resources can help the family have more literacy, not only about the person's recovery, but about what's possible. And NAMI is a wonderful kind of resource like that. Um, Mental Health America has resources for families. Um, other places, you know, Advocates for Human Potential, BU. I mean, all of the research and training centers, I would say probably um, the one at, you know, uh, Temple maybe, Dory, in community inclusion might particularly yeah. have some, you know. But that work with families to help educate them about what is possible and, you know, again, maybe kind of show this person that your person, your child is actually doing a great thing, is in a great job and is thriving in where they are. And that, you know, maybe if everyone could be reflective of their expectations and, you know, focus on success versus just a goal, like as the success, like check off a box, you did a thing, but actually unpack what is that success that helps families because I do think there's a lot of really complex concerns they have about, you know, are they gonna be taken care of? What's their potential? They're capable of more, like whatever things, you know, that families bring to that, that discussion. So we have about four minutes left. Um, and so what I think we could do, Dory, unless you disagree, um, you know, you guys, I think have the links to Mario, read about him and his story. And let's talk about him next week a little bit, in addition to the Ask Us Anything, or you know, what are some discussion things we haven't done? What would be some things each of you in your own walk might bring to Mario's experience or you're like, oh boy, we're gonna have, you know, or there's something consequential to what's going on here that we haven't written about. Like, we're gonna take this step and what we don't see coming is the potential for this to happen or that to happen. But it sounds like he's um, someone most of you have done work with. And so we were hoping that you would resonate with his experience. All right. See you, everybody. Bye. Thank you.